It's the summer of 2014 at a factory deep in the heart of Ohio. Not just any factory. This clabbered-sided building has been making projectiles since World War II. On the production floor, iron presses stamp the outer shells, readying them for battle. Workers hone the aerodynamics so the objects fly straight and true. A scorching, hot brand sears the factory's logo on their side, a source of pride for almost a century. Once the projectiles have been precisely weighed and measured, they're ready for the front lines. They're loaded into the belly of trucks and shipped to distant battlefields. But these aren't normal bullets or missiles, not in the traditional sense. No, they're footballs, American footballs. Which can also be a dangerous weapon if used correctly. Especially if they're deflated even just a tiny bit. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And I'm Carter Roy. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Well, don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the dark side of America's most popular sport, football. Today, we're poking into another controversy that plagued one of the most famous teams in NFL history, the New England Patriots. If you're a football fan, or even if you're not, you've likely heard of Deflategate. In 2015, New England was accused of underinflating footballs to give an advantage to their players, especially their quarterbacks. In this episode, we'll walk you through the investigation and discuss why underinflated balls were such a big deal in the first place. Then we'll explore the biggest conspiracy theory surrounding the scandal. Did the Patriots intentionally deflate footballs to get a leg up over their opponents? Let's see if this speculation holds air or if it falls flat. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Conspiracy. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. In 2007 and 2008, the NFL and the New England Patriots were rocked by a major scandal. The Spygate scandal. If you haven't listened to our episode on it, we recommend you check it out. But in the meantime, here's a crash course. The Patriots had allegedly videotaped opponents' play signals from the sidelines, an act that was strictly prohibited in the NFL. The Pats and their coach Bill Belichick vehemently denied any intentional wrongdoing, but the NFL slapped them with some of the biggest fines the league had ever seen, $750,000 in total. After that, things seemed to quiet down for the Pats. That is, until 2015, when a new controversy emerged. This one with a similarly catchy name. Deflategate. And it was focused on a singular accusation that the Patriots had been intentionally deflating footballs to win games. In January 2015, the Patriots were under the microscope again. But this time, the investigation was spearheaded by a fancy New York City law firm and one of their top attorneys, a slick, Harvard-educated lawyer named Theodore V. Wells Jr., better known as Ted Wells. Wells had already made a name for himself within the NFL. Two years earlier, the league hired him to examine another conspiracy ending in Gate. No, not Spygate, but... Bullygate, a probe into the Miami Dolphins following claims of player harassment. This case had already given one player, Richie Incognito, an eight-game suspension before Wells came in. After his report, no formal punishment was given out by the team or NFL at large, but Incognito denies the harassment claims in Wells' probe. Wells wasn't going to let this case with the Patriots get swept under the rug, as many alleged had happened with Spygate. This investigation was going to be painstaking, forensic. Wells and his team spent months interviewing witnesses and gathering phone records. They even hired a scientific consulting firm to help them out. Then, on May 6, 2015, after roughly four months of scrutiny, Wells released the findings. Its official title was a long one, 
the investigative report concerning footballs used during the AFC Championship game on January 18, 2015. Most people just called it the Ted Wells Report. But to call it a report was an understatement. It was a 243-page anthology full of call logs, graphs, lab results, and some dramatic conclusions. It also gave one of the most detailed timelines of the event. According to the Wells Report, it all began six months earlier, not at the AFC Championship as stated in the document's title, but during a regular season game on October 16, 2014. Thursday Night Football. New England was hosting the New York Jets at Gillette Stadium just outside Boston. It should have been an easy matchup for the Patriots. The Jets were ranked last in the division with a record of five losses in six games. But in the third quarter, the Patriots found themselves trailing by two points. Against the last place Jets, this was unthinkable. But come the fourth quarter, the Pats regained their footing and eked out a win, 27-25. It was a close one, but New England quarterback Tom Brady didn't appear happy with the results. According to the Wells report, during and after the game, Tom Brady, quote, complained angrily, but not about the team's preparation, conditioning, or play selection. It was about one other thing, air pressure. More specifically, he said the footballs used in that game were inflated too high. According to Wells, Brady specifically took his frustrations out on two Patriots staff members. One was an assistant equipment manager in his mid-30s named John Dostremski, a former ball boy who'd worked for the Patriots since he was a teenager. The second was a 40-something part-time locker room attendant named Jim McNally. You may wonder how an assistant equipment manager and a locker room attendant were so connected with Deflategate and Brady, but the reality is they were important members of the team behind the scenes. Jastrzemski was the guy who selected and prepared the footballs, and McNally carried them to the field before each home game. In a later arbitration hearing against the league, Brady explained that before each game, Jastrzemski presented him with upwards of 30 or 40 balls. From that batch, NFL rules required Brady, or any QB, to select 12 game balls and as many as 12 backup balls. Brady was quoted in the Ted Wells report as saying there's a kind of an art to picking the right balls, and he chose ones that, quote, felt the best. And what makes a ball feel best? Well, it's totally subjective. Back in 2015, Atlanta Falcons quarterback Matt Ryan reported to USA Today that his team used game balls during practices for two to three weeks to soften them up. New Orleans Saints QB Drew Brees preferred his balls similarly broken in. Then there were some, like Matthew Stafford of the Detroit Lions, who claimed he didn't care about how the balls felt. It was all in how he played. As for Brady, he claimed in the later arbitration hearing that Jastrzemski prematurely aged their balls with dirt and sandpaper before a game. But during that matchup with the Jets, something seemingly went wrong. The balls didn't feel right. 
According to the Wells report, Brady complained to Jastrzemski mid-game that the balls felt like bricks. Brady would later say in arbitration that he meant the ball's leather was hard, not as soft as he typically liked it. Now let's pause here to also discuss the importance of ball pressure. Before Deflategate, the amount of air required in the ball wasn't exactly strict. All regulations state the ball must be from the brand Wilson, bearing the signature of the commissioner of the league, Roger Goodell. They also noted the pig skin had to be inflated to between 12 and a half and 13 and a half pounds per square inch, or PSI. But the referee was not required to mark the PSI when checking them, and this was done just over two hours before the game started. But after Deflategate, that changed. Suddenly, there were much stricter rules governing who controlled the balls, for how long, and of course, the ball's PSI. Now, refs select two crew members to check the pressure before every game and at halftime. So, why does PSI matter? Well, because a hard ball is difficult to grip and control. The more you can squeeze it, the easier it is to throw, catch, and hold on to. All key actions on the gridiron. An ABC News affiliate in Boston quoted former NFL quarterback Hugh Millen in 2015, who said, Most quarterbacks like to have less air than more air. The Wells report also quoted Brady, saying something similar about his footballs at a press conference in January 2015. He claimed, quote, I like them at the way that I like them, which is at 12.5. To me, that's a perfect grip. It boils down to this. A softer ball should help you win. Which is why the NFL now strictly regulates the air pressure to those magic numbers of between 12.5 and 13.5. So no one should have an advantage over anyone else. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's cut back to that Jets game. Where Brady allegedly felt like something was wrong. And he may have been right. According to the Ted Wells report, when Jastrzemski tested the balls, some were allegedly nearly at 16 PSI. According to the NFL rulebook as of 2014, that's nearly 20% overinflated. Jastrzemski seemed to blame the NFL refs. He was quoted in the Ted Wells report as saying, the refs screwed us, which likely wasn't some conspiracy. At the time, Without proper procedures, the refs probably just inadvertently overfilled the balls after McNally and Jastrzemski delivered them at the bare minimum pre-game. Either way, that 20% changed football forever, and it's possible many on the Patriots vowed they'd never let overinflated balls nearly cost them a game again. Coming up, an allegedly spongy ball causes an uproar. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. 
Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Now back to the story. It was October 17th, 2014, the day after a tough game against the last place New York Jets. And according to the Wells report, there was a lot going on behind the scenes. Tom Brady complained about the ball's feel to assistant equipment manager John Jastrzemski. We don't know what he said exactly, but Ted Wells may have gotten a glimpse. Mainly because he was granted access to McNally and Jastrzemski's phones, and they seemed to reveal some enlightening, colorful language about Tom Brady and the footballs. Which is where we start unpacking our one and only conspiracy theory today, that the New England Patriots may have intentionally deflated footballs to get a leg up over their opponents. On Friday, October 17th, the day after the Jets game, McNally sent a text to Jastrzemski. It read, Tom sucks. I'm going to make that next ball a f***ing balloon. Jastrzemski replied a bit more professionally, it read, talk to him last night. He actually brought you up and said you must have a lot of stress trying to get them done. McNally concluded their exchange that day with another dig at their famous quarterback. Fuck Tom. 16 is nothing. Wait till next Sunday. Now we know these texts sound a bit counterintuitive, like McNally was actually threatening to overinflate the balls. But really, we think he might have just been bitter about the way he was treated by the teammates after that game. Instead, it's possible this experience put the fear of God in McNally, who then overcompensated for the high PSI in later games by, you guessed it, deflating those balls further. Especially because in subsequent texts, the two discussed getting McNally autographs from Brady, Cash, and a needle presumably to deflate the balls. And in a couple of instances, McNally referred to himself suspiciously as the deflator. To counter Ted Wells' conclusions, the Patriots released a 20,000-word response to the report. They contended the texts were an example of McNally's sense of humor. And since McNally was a heavyset gentleman looking to lose weight, they claimed the deflator nickname referred to his interest in shedding pounds. The text didn't directly implicate McNally and Jastrzemski, but things did get more suspicious a month after that Jets game. On November 16, 2014, the Patriots faced the Indianapolis Colts. Unlike the Jets, Indianapolis was a force to be reckoned with. They had a hot young quarterback named Andrew Luck. Going into this game, Luck and the Colts were rated the number one offense in the league. 
The Patriots weren't in bad shape either, with a record of seven wins and two losses. Many thought it was going to be a battle. On paper, it was smooth sailing for the Patriots. They led the entire game and won 42-20. But behind the scenes, it didn't go as well. According to the Wells Report, Colts defensive player Mike Adams intercepted two passes from Tom Brady. Instead of handing the balls to the officials, as most players do after a play ends, he carried them back to the Colts' sideline. There, the ball was passed to Indianapolis equipment manager Sean Sullivan. Just like Dostremski on the Patriots, Sullivan was involved in preparing his team's footballs. During an interview with Wells and other investigators, Sullivan explained when a competitor's ball ended up in his hands, he always examined it to ensure, quote, no one is doing a better job than him. It was quality control and a little opposition research. So Sullivan examined the pigskin, and to a trained equipment manager who's likely handled thousands of balls, he immediately noticed something was off. According to Sullivan, the Patriots' ball felt tacky and spongy. At the time, nothing came of it. Sullivan and the Colts didn't report it to the league. They simply let it go. Or so it seemed. The Patriots continued their season on the wiser. They finished with a record of 12 wins and 4 losses. There was hope they'd return to the Super Bowl. To get there, they had to beat two more teams. First up, the Baltimore Ravens. They'd beaten New England twice before in the playoffs. This year, the Patriots fought hard and made a comeback in the second half, winning 35-31 to and taking the division title for the sixth year in a row. Next, the Patriots faced off against none other than the Indianapolis Colts. Whoever won this round was going to the Super Bowl. But the Colts hadn't forgotten about the suspiciously spongy balls earlier in the season. On Saturday, January 17th, the day before the playoff game, Indianapolis General Manager Ryan Grigson sent an email to the NFL Operations Department. He didn't beat around the bush. He sent them Sullivan's note about the Patriots possibly using underinflated balls and simply requested that referees be vigilant. With that tip hanging in the air, game day arrived. Sunday, January 18th, was looking like a rainy night at Gillette Stadium just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. A few hours before the matchup, representatives from both the Colts and the Patriots lugged 12 game balls each to the referee's locker room. The Patriots' balls were handled, per usual for a home game, by Jim McNally. And, perhaps because of Sullivan's tip, the refs made sure to double-check their PSI. According to the Wells report, during the inspection, McNally informed the referees that Tom Brady preferred his balls at 12.5 PSI, the lowest allowable pressure. And most of them measured exactly that. Only two tested below 12.5, so the refs raised them to 12.5. Meanwhile, all of the Colts' balls tested between 12.8 and 13.1 PSI. Perhaps the Colts had been too paranoid about the ball pressure. Everything seemed up to standard. Except when the referee was ready to head out to the field, he noticed the game balls they'd tested were now gone from the Pats and the Colts. 
According to the Wells report, it was the first time in the referee's 19-year career that he couldn't locate the balls at the start of a game. Ted Wells had to get to the bottom of it. During the investigation, he obtained security camera footage from Gillette Stadium. According to the tapes and backed up by interviews, McNally had ducked into a bathroom, locked the door, and remained there for roughly one minute and 40 seconds. No one knew what he was doing in there. But eventually, he emerged from the bathroom with the bags of game balls in tow. He then casually lugged them onto the field. At the time, according to the Wells report, none of the game officials knew McNally had made the detour. And he might have gotten away with it too. Except, in the second quarter of the game, Tom Brady launched a pass to his tight end, Rob Gronkowski. Before it reached Gronkowski's hands, Colts linebacker Dequell Jackson sprinted in front and grabbed it. Much like earlier in the season, Jackson didn't hand the ball back to the officials. It was courier to the sidelines to Colts assistant equipment manager Brian Seabrooks. This time, Seabrooks had an intern check the air pressure. And it was underinflated, at least according to the Wells report. Supposedly, this intern got a measurement of about 11 PSI, which triggered a cascade of events. Seabrooks alerted Sullivan, who felt the ball himself, and then alerted two game officials on the field, as well as the Colts' VP of Equipment Operations. He then told the Colts' general manager, Ryan Grigson. By the time Grigson could reach NFL officials, they were already aware of the situation. At halftime, every game ball was collected and brought to the officials' locker room. To be thorough, two officials tested each ball. From the Patriots' batch, 11 balls were tested. All were under 12.5 PSI, according to both officials. Some ball readings came back as underinflated by 2 pounds per square inch. To be fair, some of the Colts' balls tested under 12.5 PSI, too. They varied in pressure between 12.15 and 12.95 PSI, and though the referees only had time to measure four of their game balls, they deemed theirs to be properly inflated. It should also be noted that there was variation between each of the officials' measurements. But on average, the Patriots' balls were all deemed underinflated, beneath that magic number of 12 and a half. It appeared that the Patriots were on the wrong side of the rules again. But the game had to go on, Millions of spectators were watching. They didn't know what the officials had discovered behind the scenes. So, the referees reinflated the balls and whistled for the contest to continue. Any repercussions would have to be handled by the league at a later date. Once the game resumed, the Patriots went on to beat the Colts in a landslide 45-7 victory. They'd head back to the Super Bowl this time to face the defending Super Bowl champs, the Seattle Seahawks, and their star QB, Russell Wilson. It should have been a moment to celebrate. But just hours after the game, Indianapolis sports columnist Bob Kravitz tweeted a bombshell. A confidential NFL source confirmed there was an investigation into the Patriots' allegedly deflated footballs. 
The news was likely devastating for the Patriots. Deflategate wasn't a headline yet, but after the controversy of Spygate eight years earlier, they'd likely never hear the end of it. And this time, the NFL wasn't going to let them off with a slap on the wrists. Everything was going to be laid bare. And this time, the punishments would be monumental. Coming up, Tom Brady faces the NFL's wrath. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Now, back to the story. January 19th, 2015. The New England Patriots had just beaten the Indianapolis Colts, securing their eighth trip to the Super Bowl. It should have been a time to celebrate, but that wasn't the case. The news was dominated by headlines about Deflategate and the NFL investigation. Fans around the country likely didn't know the name Ted Wells yet, but they would soon enough. He was formally announced as the co-lead investigator on the case on January 23, 2015. From that moment on, the probe moved quickly. Wells and his colleagues gathered information across the spectrum, from exact air pressures of the game balls to phone calls and text records of Patriot staff. All the attention may have spooked Tom Brady. According to the Wells report, the Pats QB and equipment assistant, John Jastrzemski, hadn't appeared to communicate by phone for more than six months prior to that day, based on Jastrzemski's cell records. But on January 19th, in the day after the playoff game, the two spoke four times over the phone and exchanged 12 text messages. They chatted again on January 20th and 21st. Of course, we don't know all of what they said, but the Wells report did include text messages found on Jastrzemski's phone. On January 19th, Brady texted Jastrzemski, You good, Johnny boy? Jastrzemski responded, Still nervous. So far, so good, though. I'll be all right. Brady followed up with, You didn't do anything wrong, bud. Wells and his team seemed convinced their communications about the alleged ball deflation after January 18th meant Brady and Jastrzemski were connected to ball tampering. But in the Patriots' response to the report, they contended the opposite. To them, the fact that Brady and Jastrzemski hadn't been in contact for six months during the time of the alleged scheme indicated they weren't coordinating the deflation of balls. The Ted Wells investigation didn't end there. 
but it was going to have to take a beat until after the Super Bowl. It was February 1st, 2015 in Phoenix, Arizona. 70,000 spectators were in attendance as 114.4 million tuned in from home. At the time, it was the most watched television program of all time. Right out of the gate, the teams were evenly matched. They were tied at the end of halftime, 14 to 14. In the second half, the Seahawks pulled ahead by 10 points. But Tom Brady and the Patriots dug deep in the final quarter, putting up 14 points. They were just barely in the lead, 28 to 24. But the game wasn't over. The Seahawks' Russell Wilson rallied his team and made a valiant drive down the field. All they needed was a touchdown, and they'd win. With 26 seconds on the clock, the Seahawks were on the Patriots' one-yard line. The end zone was right there. One final push, and they'd be champions. It was a relatively routine play, usually with a powerful running back spearing through the defense or vaulting over the scrimmage line. This time, however, their QB, Russell Wilson, held onto the ball and dropped back to pass. With the Patriots probably expecting a run, it could have been a brilliant feint. But as he launched the ball towards one of his open men near the end zone, a Patriots rookie named Malcolm Butler intercepted the ball. Seattle missed their opportunity. The Patriots ran out the clock and won 28-24. They were Super Bowl champions, the fourth time in their history. Coincidentally, all four under Brady and Belichick. Patriots fans celebrated once again. Their hero, Tom Brady, was named the game's MVP. NFL.com ranked the contest one of the best Super Bowls in history. And yet, it was overshadowed by the specter of Deflategate. Immediately after the trophy ceremonies, the team boarded a jet home to where someone was waiting for them. Not the fans, not the parades, but instead, Ted Wells. This wasn't going to be the easy open-and-shut case of Spygate. Wells was prepared to dig deep and investigate every aspect of Deflategate. He demanded to interview over 60 people at the Patriots, Colts, and the League. He even brought in an engineering firm called Exponent to study the pressure of NFL footballs in various conditions and temperatures. While the scientists performed their experiments, Ted Wells examined his own subjects. He grilled Jastrzemski, McNally, Belichick, and eventually... Brady. In addition to sitting down with the legendary quarterback, Wells also wanted someone to look through Brady's phone. But when Wells came for the QB's information, Brady said one of his devices wasn't available. He claimed it had been destroyed. There is very little mention of the incident in the Ted Wells report, only that Brady, quote, declined to make available any documents or electronic information, including text messages and emails, that investigators requested. But by that summer, the news picked up on it. Over the next few weeks, deflated footballs were no longer in the spotlight. It was Brady's phone. Bloomberg News even posed the question, did Deflategate morph into cell phone gate? And it wasn't just the media who wanted to know about Brady's device. The NFL wanted to know, too. 
In a June 2015 appeal hearing with the league, Commissioner Goodell questioned Brady about it, who said, I've stepped on the screen a few times. It just fell out of my bag at my locker. I stepped on it. I think three or four times. Sometimes the touch panel breaks. There were also suspicions about the timing of the damaged device. Brady gave information from two of his other phones, his phone that was likely used between May and November 2014, and a phone that was used between March 6th and early April 2015. Brady's meeting with Ted Wells was on March 6th, 2015, the same day his new phone was activated. Was that a coincidence? We'll let you be the judge of that. According to the Patriots' response to the Wells report, Brady was specifically informed by the NFL that he didn't need to turn over his cell phone, only a statement by his attorneys regarding the messages on his phone. A sports blog called Deadspin reported on this appeal hearing, where Brady's lawyers claimed they actually did supply Wells with access to his emails and a log of his texts from his cell phone provider that covered the time period his two phones could not account for. But the damage was already done. Brady's reluctance to turn over his phone likely swayed the public and the investigators' opinion of his alleged involvement. Deadspin quoted Ted Wells from this appeal hearing as saying the broken phone, quote, hurt how I viewed his credibility. They also reported the device was a point of contention for NFL commissioner Roger Goodell. So was Brady's cell phone the linchpin in connecting him or the team to our conspiracy theory? It was a dramatic moment in the investigation, and it may have looked suspicious. But it's hard to say whether it actually mattered. It sounded like he turned over all the information they needed anyway. Plus, things got worse for Brady once Exponent's lab results were ready. According to the company's experiments, the pressure of the Patriots' game balls could not have been caused by temperature fluctuations or atmospheric conditions on the day of the game. In other words, according to Exponent, It wasn't due to cold air. Their conclusions supported the theory that the balls had probably been tampered with, allegedly by the Patriots. It was a damning conclusion. Afterwards, the entire Wells report was released to the public on May 5, 2015, complete with graphs, figures, and transcripts of Jastrzemski and McNally's texts, some to Tom Brady. As we mentioned earlier, It was a 243-page behemoth, but all people cared about were two sentences. The first, according to Ted Wells and his team, it was, quote, more probable than not that Jim McNally, the official's locker room attendant for the Patriots, and John Jastrzemski, an equipment assistant for the Patriots, participated in a deliberate effort to release air from Patriots game balls. The second was this, quote, It was more probable than not that Tom Brady, the quarterback for the Patriots, was at least generally aware of the wrongdoing. That's right. Even though Wells' report was carefully, meticulously worded to avoid any legal issues, he acknowledged that Tom Brady was likely aware of what was happening. The NFL seemed to agree. 
because six days later, on May 11th, the league announced their punishments. The New England Patriots were fined an unprecedented $1 million, quite an increase over the Spygate fine of 250 grand. But for a team that generated nearly $500 million per year and was worth over $3 billion in 2015, according to Forbes, that's barely a parking ticket. That being said, the Patriots' punishment included something much more devastating. The forfeiture of multiple draft picks, a first-round pick in 2016 and a fourth-round pick in 2017. It's impossible to put a dollar value on draft picks, but we'll pose it to you this way. What if the Patriots missed out on drafting their next Tom Brady? That could be a franchise-changing penalty. As for Brady's punishment, he was slapped with something maybe more devastating, a four-game suspension at the start of the next season. To you or me, sitting out four games doesn't sound so bad. But for a quarterback at the beginning of the season, that's valuable playing time. For a likely Hall of Famer like Brady, it also chews into his all-time stats. Not only would he miss out on four possible wins, it also meant that he could lose close to a thousand yards from his all-time total. At the time, Brady was in the top 10 for all-time passing yards with more than 50,000 yards. He was chasing legends like the Green Bay Packers' Brett Favre and Indianapolis Colts' Peyton Manning, who had almost 70,000. Of course, no one knew at the time that Brady would eventually surpass them all with an unprecedented 100,000, including postseason yards. But Brady's fine wasn't just a matter of yards and records. He also was made to forfeit his salary for those games. At the time, Brady was paid approximately $925,000 per regular season game, but the pay forfeiture only came out of his base pay for the season, which was $1 million. So a four-game suspension comes out to be about $235,294, according to Boston.com. That's pretty close to the quarter million dollars the Patriots had to give up after Spygate. At the time, the Deflategate fines were the largest in NFL history. Since then, there have been even bigger ones. In 2022, Cleveland Browns QB Deshaun Watson was fined $5 million for violating the league's conduct policy. As a team, the Washington Commanders were fined $10 million for alleged workplace misconduct in 2021. But back in 2015, even though the Patriots' punishment was the highest at the time, the team opted not to fight. ESPN quoted Robert Kraft, the team owner, as saying he respected Commissioner Roger Goodell, and though he may disagree with the outcome, quote, I'm going to accept, reluctantly, what he has given to us. We won't appeal. Brady, on the other hand, wasn't as accepting. He appealed his suspension directly to the league, but Commissioner Goodell didn't change his mind. Brady didn't stop there. He then tried to escalate his case through the federal court system with the National Football League Players Association as his co-defendant. But ultimately, he backed down after the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit denied his request for a rehearing. On July 15, 2016, over a year after Deflategate began, he released a statement via Facebook, 
It read, It has been a challenging 18 months, and I have made the difficult decision to no longer proceed with the legal process. I'm going to work hard to be the best player I can be for the New England Patriots, and I look forward to having the opportunity to return to the field this fall. Even though Tom Brady had accepted the punishment and seemingly found closure on Deflategate, others didn't give up so easily. Some sports commentators and writers questioned Tedwell's objectivity and independence during the investigation. Best-selling authors Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge pointed out in their book 12, The Inside Story of Tom Brady's Fight for Redemption, that Wells' law firm allegedly received a total of $45 million over the course of two investigations, which seems like an astronomical sum for a job like this. There's no way to say if that influenced the outcome of the probe, but it could have been motivation to maintain their relationship with the NFL and be asked to return for a future scandal ending in gate. Ted Wells clapped back at his critics. The Washington Post quoted him as saying, I think it's wrong to criticize my independence just because you disagree with my findings. He makes a fair point, but CBS News also reported on questions about the consulting firm Wells hired, Exponent. According to CBS reporters, in the past, Exponent had allegedly denied secondhand smoke caused cancer. People weren't only scrutinizing Exponent's past work. Other scientists refuted their Deflategate experiments, too. The New York Times profiled an MIT professor who claimed the report went against the laws of physics. You might be thinking, of course, a physicist from Massachusetts would try and debunk the findings and side with the Patriots. But according to the Times, the professor was a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and his results were corroborated by other scientists at Carnegie Mellon the University of Chicago, the University of Illinois, and others. Exponent defended its research and pointed out possible flaws in their critics' work. But it makes you wonder, who got it right? Which brings us to the wrap-up of our one and only conspiracy theory, that the New England Patriots allegedly deflated footballs to win games. I'm going to repeat our mantra from earlier. It was never proven that anyone on the Patriots knowingly deflated balls. And our opinions are just that. Opinions about a conspiracy theory. Personally, I side with our conspiracy theory and the Ted Wells report. Not only were the texts between McNally and Dostremsky suspicious, Brady claimed his phone was destroyed just before he was asked for its information. Plus, we have a reputable research firm stating the balls had to have been tampered with, to take the words from the Wells report, it feels, quote, more probable than not. It may seem suspicious, but for me, it's just not enough. At best, what we have here is only circumstantial evidence. Besides, Brady's broken phone was a moot point after his provider supplied the text and call logs. And the fact that professors from around the country disagreed about the scientific findings of the report makes me doubt its truth. Up until Tom Brady left the New England Patriots for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2020, the team seemed to be a lightning rod for controversy. Following the Spygate scandal, Deflategate captured the public's attention for over a year. 
It became a joke and spawned numerous memes of deflated balls. Even President Obama got in on the game. In April 2015, when the Patriots visited the White House, the president quipped, I usually tell a bunch of jokes at these events, but with the Patriots in town, I was worried that 11 out of 12 of them would fall flat. While we might not see eye to eye on the scandal, I think there's one other thing we can both agree on, Molly. Yeah? What's that? That footballs, when placed in the wrong hands, can be dangerous weapons, after all. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Adam DeSilva, edited by Mallory Cara and Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Kotovich, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. 